You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Change is something we as humans fear. We like routine and we struggle to embrace anything that alters the way we like to do things. But change is also progress and through change we innovate and improve, always trying to find a better way to do things. At Real Vision we've been changing financial media and finding new ways to connect our audience with the world of investing for almost four years. The architect of much of that change has been my friend and co-founder and the company's CEO, and he joins us today to talk not just about change within Real Vision, but within financial markets themselves. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Raoul Powell. Today is the 3rd of May 2018 and welcome everybody to episode 65 of Adventures in Finance. Um, we've got a little difference this week for you, uh, which I'll get to in a minute, but uh, as always, trusty James, the producer, sitting in the Cayman Islands. Jimmy, you there? I'm back. You're back. You see, see that's, that's about as most vigour as I've heard in your voice for a long time. What have you been doing while you've been away? Oh man, I've, I've been in, in Devon in an absolute <laughs> reception black <laughs> now, spot. Now, Sorry. anybody who's from the UK, when they hear us talking about vigor, and you say that to recharge us, have you been in Devon? They're going to wonder what the hell you've been doing. Most I'm, people go there and eat cream tea. I've been, I was doing that, and there was definitely a lot of cream tea, but it was just really nice not being contactable for about two weeks. Well, you know, look, we could we could pretend I could say I'd missed you, but, you know, really, are we going to fool anybody, Jimmy? Uh, I don't know. How did Bradley do? He did great. He did fantastic. He was, a, he was a, an able-bodied stand-in, so... Uh, Thanks again to Bradley for last week. Now, absent so far this week is Alex, and there's a good reason for that. He is also on holiday. Um, no getting up in the middle of the night and carrying on with the podcast regardless for Alex. Oh, no. When he takes a week off, he takes a week off. But the good news is, standing in for him uh, is my friend and partner and co-founder of Real Vision, Raoul Pearl. Mate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's been a while since I've been here, actually. It's nice to be settled in. It's been a long time since uh, since you and I have done this. It's, it's uh, great to be back. And the reason that uh, Raoul is with us this week is to talk about the changes that uh, anyone listening to this will have seen going on in Real Vision. We've got a whole bunch of really exciting stuff going on, and those changes 
which we announced last week um, for the uh, video platform, are going to extend to the podcast. So Raoul has very kindly agreed to come on uh, and talk with me about those. And uh, the, uh, the the quid pro quo was that I get to interview him, so you guys get to hear what he's thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. So we'll get to that shortly. Um, but Raoul, let's talk about uh, first. Let's talk about the changes to Real Vision. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really exciting time for us. You know, as you know, our mission was to democratize the world's best financial information, and that basically means bringing to as many people as possible who are influenced by the financial world the quality of information the people on Wall Street would get. You know, you and I talked at length, and we've mentioned this on the podcast before and elsewhere, is, you know, back in 2008, we really realised how much the financial media had let people down. And that was something that became a rallying cry for all of us, that we could change this, we could do something about it. And that was the reason behind the podcast, the reason behind Think Tank and the publications, and particularly the reason behind television. Um, And so we were looking at that mission and thinking, how do we really move this forward? What is the right way to do this? How's the best way to influence the largest number of people and help guide them through this financial minefield that's out there? And what we realized is moving towards a full television channel is the right way. So we've kind of been a web-based video service But now it's changing and we're now available on Apple TV. We're about to be available on Roku, Amazon Fire, Chromecast and rolling out across all of these television platforms to allow you to watch Real Vision anywhere you want. Obviously, we get give transcripts as well and audio files. It's really as a television channel for the modern world. But a television channel can't just have three pieces of content a week. Real Vision had already the best content possible or the, the benchmark of content by any kind of financial TV channel in the world. We were super proud of that, but it wasn't enough. It was a little specialist and quite expensive. So how do we broaden it out to keep everybody happy? Because we want to show to financial market professionals that we can also lead that discussion too, but also broaden it out to the more average investor. So the idea was, in fact, tripling the amount of content that we produce on a weekly basis. So we've gone from three pieces to 11 pieces plus, and that'll keep increasing over time. And it's going to look and feel more like television of the modern age. So Real Vision is known for its deep dive, long form, uh, incredible interviews and analysis, our documentary series and our big stories. We'll continue with that exactly as is. But on top of that, we're going to layer some shorter form content to help people digest things on the run, and people who don't have the same level of financial intelligence but really want to learn more. So we're starting off with adding a bunch of trade ideas. People want actionable ideas because not everybody is yet familiar with how to create an investment idea. So what we've done is reached out to about 30 well-known contributors and said, listen, can you come into our studios and give us a trade idea, you know, a 10 to 15 minute idea. It should be fleshed out, thought of with stop loss, entry points, the risk rewards, all of those kind of things that you need to do to understand a trade. Now, nobody's really doing this properly in financial media. And we think it's very exciting and it's going to help people understand how to trade. Again, these aren't trade recommendations. They're ideas to allow you to think about potential opportunities in markets, be they long, be they short, be they hedging, there's a whole number of things. And again, it's across all asset classes. So it's not just for, you know, macro guys. It's also for single stock people too. So that's really exciting. But we also know that people need to understand how to trade. And a lot of that is the psychology of trading. As, as you know, Grant, it's trading is a tough thing to do. And it has some kind of drawbacks on the mental side. 
So what we did is we reached out to some of the world's most famous trading psychologists and asked them to be involved. So they've done some short videos for us and a whole series of them um, about trade psychology and how to approach trading, the mindset that you need. So that gives people yet another tool. We've also rolling out a whole host of other programming, again, mainly in the short form, but there'll be some long form programming too. The other thing that we looked at is we looked at how people these days think about money and how they think about their own financial future. And the world has changed from the one we grew up in, where really people thought the financial markets, this is where all the action lay. We think now that things have broadened out and it's a healthy change. You and I have talked many times about the shrinking of the financial industry, and that's still underway. And part of it is automated and the other part is just disappearing or being disrupted. But if you look at and ask people today what the real opportunity to create wealth is, it's from building businesses. And so that's another area we're going to move into to help people with their startup entrepreneurship journey. And I think that's something vital and is really helpful. The finance part fits in with that because the financial economy and the economy is everything. But also, once people get to make some money or create some savings, it's investing those for the future. So we're trying to create kind of a soup to nuts entire experience for people and their financial journey through life. And again, you know, we'll address that on multiple levels from deep dive, highly intelligent conversations with some of the world's best startup investors or people who are starting businesses through to simpler guides and ideas. So there's a whole bunch of programming to come. So what we're really doing is we're really creating the finance and business TV channel for the future. Now, if we really were true to our goal of getting it to everybody, we can't charge $600. We even knew that people would tell us that $600 was cheap for what Real Vision was with its three pieces of almost perfect content. But the reality is, is that's not broad enough for everybody. Most people can't afford $600 to get a return back on their investment. So we're also going to slash the price. We're going to create TV-like pricing, so it's going to be $180, $15 a month. So that's kind of 50 cents a day to get the world's best finance and business television channel. So that's a really exciting thing, and that's where the business is going. Now, obviously, we, you, we've chatted about this before on the podcast, but along with those changes to the programming, um, you know, we're going we're to shake the podcast up because we, we don't want to sit in our laurels and just keep producing the same thing. We want to keep trying different things, keep trying to find different ways to reach people in different ways uh, for people to engage in finance. So um, next week will be the last uh, Adventures in Finance in its current form. We will be changing the podcast. We'll still be back every week. Um, the podcast name will change. It'll be called Real Vision Presents. And the idea of that is that there's going to be a much broader set of podcast offerings. Um, Alex is going to stay on as the host, along with Justine Underhill, who's done a fantastic job on the Real Vision uh, trader content. And uh, the, every week there'll be something a little different. Um, we're going to do a series of podcasts similar to what we've done in Adventures in Finance with long-form interviews with people. But they'll be sprinkled um, throughout uh, the programming as opposed to being the same every week. Uh, Raoul, talk a little bit about uh, the knock-on effect, which is going to be another component of this, because I know that's something that's very dear to your heart. Yeah, the knock-on effect is, is something unique. If we're trying to be pioneers within the media industry, we understand that people consume media in a number of different ways, be it the written form or video form or the audio form. What we're doing here is we're going to combine the best of podcasting, which is engaging, immersive, fun, relaxed, but also doing it on video. 
So this is a this is a program which is both in video form and in podcast form, which will be everywhere. And what it is is really creating the kind of knock-on effects of the stories of finance. It's maybe how trade tariffs might lead to textile prices in Indiana going up or or why the price of oil leads to a less fluffy crust on your pizza. What it really is is just a magical trip through the story of finance and how finance affects everyday lives. And it's a bit of fun. We've got Roger Hurst, one of our um, the person who co-manages our content side. Um, he's the professor, the Oxford Don. He was Oxford University educated and worked with me at Goldman Sachs. And he's going to help educate people on this journey. And Alex and Justine will have a lot of fun taking us all down these journeys of finance. And what you'll get out of it is you'll have about 25 minutes of some really interesting, educational and fun elements of the world of finance. And we think this should help broaden our reach, but also address things at the level of intelligence of which people of this, uh, listeners of this podcast have come to expect. I think if, you know, people love adventures in finance and there's a big group of listeners out there. Now, if you like this kind of intelligent discussion about financial markets, then I really urge you to go and take a free trial of the uh, new Real Vision because you'll find there's, it's like adventures in finance kind of turned up to 11. There's so much in there. And now at $180, it's affordable for everybody, be you a student or be you a retiree. And I I really urge you to give it a go. You just go to realvision.com forward slash adventures in finance, and you should be able to log in from there and uh, take a free trial and have a look around. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, that's that's uh, what the podcast is going to look like going forwards. Um, but before we get to the new podcast, we've got uh, one and three quarters uh, old format podcast to get through. And 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 this week, Rail, you are going to sing for your supper because I am going to dig into that brain of yours and find out what you'll think about a whole bunch of stuff. And next week, we'll be back with a very special season finale with uh, a bunch of guests for you that I think you're going to really enjoy uh, listening to. But before we do that, Rail. As I've warned you, you come on here and you have to uh, you have to sing for your supper. So we're going to jump into our long short segment. So hopefully you've done a little homework uh, because I'm going to let you go first, as I always do. Um, give me a long or a short for the week. What have you got for me? Okay, I'm going to start with my long idea and my right. long idea of pork bellies. Pork bellies, okay. I'll I bite. just a wanted to say that because it's so <laughs> old school, cool, right? Yeah, exactly. It's right. like trading places. I just want to be long pork bellies. But really, it's the journey that I've gone through over the last year with something called the ketogenic diet. And what it is, is it's basically a zero-carbohydrate diet um, and eating a lot of kind of fatty meat. And it sounds odd because we've been told that fats are bad. Um, And the, the reality was I started this thing with a bit of cynicism. And over the course of four months, I've lost like 40 pounds um, without having to do anything except eat things like pork belly. Pork belly and salad, pork belly and some vegetables. Um, or well, it doesn't have to be pork belly. It could be fish, it could be chicken, it could be beef. But what it, it has, has changed um, my entire outlook on, on how to eat. I also went lucky enough to get a chance to go to the Mayo Clinic, which is, I think, probably the world's best hospital based in Minnesota. And I had my blood test done. This was my gift to myself for my 50th birthday. And I had all my blood tests and the health check. And it was the cleanest bill of health I'd ever had. And that's from basically eating a bunch of fatty things and some salad. 
So I'm long pork bellies. It's changed well, my listen, life. You're, you're going to have to give the people listening. You're going to have to spell this out because I'm sure people are sitting there thinking, "How did old fat boy lose forty pounds? I need to. Uh, <laughs> I need to do something about this." So it, it, sounded, it sounded more like a, a, a yoga school than a diet. How do you spell it? Uh, ketogenic. K E T O G E N I C. So the ketogenic diet essentially, your body's pretty clever. It's a hybrid engine. So normally it burns a bunch of things, but basically carbohydrate is its main source of energy. It can burn protein too, and it can burn fat. But most people run because of the Western diet on generally carbohydrate as as its engine. But the human body is super interesting because if you take away carbohydrate from the diet, it doesn't just give up and say, oh, I can't do it. It starts firstly consuming protein, which is your muscle, which is why a lot of people when they go on a diet lose muscle mass. But the other thing that happens is if you restrict it long enough, your body goes into a ketogenic state, which means it switches fuel source to fat. So it starts burning fat as its engine. So you you can start eating cheese and nuts and all those things you were told you can't do, but your body burns it. And then if you restrict a little bit the amount of fat in your diet, what happens is the magic happens is your body burns its own fat. It uses your fat as its energy source. And because it's using the fat as the energy source and you keep your protein level relatively high by eating plenty of meat, what happens is it doesn't eat your muscle mass, which is what normally happens on a diet. So it's this kind of magic thing about the human body, how adaptable it is. And you know, the, the key thing is your body uses its own fat supply as its fuel source. And uh, it's really super interesting. Well, I've got to say, that is without question the most useful long we've had on any of the previous 64 episodes of Adventures in Finance. People will be finally sitting there with a pen going, wow, there's finally something I can use. My long is going to fit very nicely with that, funnily enough, um, because I'm long Oscar Mayer Bacon and Bitcoin. Um, and I'm long the Baycoin, the Oscar Mayer Baycoin, which is uh, perhaps the best use for cryptocurrency that I've seen this year. Um and the way this works is that uh, you basically apply for a Baycoin from Oscar Mayer, and uh, the depending on the price of the Baycoin, the demand for it, it, you can redeem it for packs of bacon. So you, this is something that will fit well with your diet because the bacon looks like it's got but lots of bacon's fat on it. Bacon's part of the diet. Yeah, exactly right. So, so, so you, you, you've you got until May the 14th, I think it is, to apply on the Oscar Mayer website for a Baycoin. And, uh, Maybe this is the new, way value, to play, the new way to play pork bellies. Well, this could be it. I mean, it's, it's as if we kind of practice this off air, but no. Pork currently, for millennials. one Baycoin is worth 11 strips of real bacon. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point when they shut uh, applications and these things are out in the wild, who knows what this is going to go up to. But I've, I've finally found uh, an application for cryptocurrencies that I can get behind, and that is uh, being able to use them to buy bacon. So my long is uh, the Oscar Mayer Baycoin, which you can find out more about at com. Um, all right, so let's let's in that case switch to the shorts. And I'm, I'm now dying to hear what you're short of, having heard you long. Okay, I'm short of something that sounds boring, but there's a good story. Apple. Obviously, we've all seen that the iPhone sales are uh, decreasing, uh, and it's you know th- that kind of halo effect of growth is no longer really around Apple. It's obviously a great company and. Uh, and all of those things, but it's not the same company that it was. It doesn't have the same growth potential. And you can tell that by this dividend they're just paying out. Yeah. They're increasing dividends massively and doing $100 billion of buybacks. It's basically a $210 billion giveaway. And that kind of tells you that Apple are running out of ideas. 
And I think that's interesting. We've seen Microsoft do this in the past, and it tends not to be particularly positive for the share price, except in the short term. But that's not why I'm sure Apple. I'm sure Apple because of Peppa Pig. There's, so, a, there's an awful lot of bacon in this week's section. It, it's what, all <laughs> about keto, ketogenic diet, Peppa okay. Pig. So Peppa Pig, it was announced this morning, has been banned on one of the largest video streaming sites in China, Durin. Now, Peppa Pig, to understand, Peppa Pig has had 30 billion views in China alone. The The entire kids' programming is the largest, one of the largest single growth areas for the entire video industry in China. People like the BBC are making fortunes by selling kids' programs to the Chinese because it, it brings a bit of Western culture um, and also it helps, you know, manage kids. You know, people put their kids in front of this programming and it gives them a broader perspective than, than uh, kids who are just brought up in China on Chinese um, content. But the problem is, is the Chinese decided to ban it, thinking that Peppa Pig was a negative influence on pigs. On pigs? No, not on pigs, on kids. Um, but the, the real issue came out is it's not just on the kids that they're worried about. It's on this generation of what they call Chinese slackers. It's kind of the younger part of the Chinese population, young adults, who are looking at Peppa Pig and using it as a kind of anti-communist party idea. They're even getting Peppa Pig tattoos, which is really quite bizarre. So what's Peppa Pig got to do with Apple? Well, I'm sure Apple, because every bloody child I've met over the last 15 years has grown up with Peppa Pig as their parent. Every person who's come to stay with me in the Cayman Islands or Spain have brought their iPad along and Peppa Pig has been the parent when when the other parents are having a glass of wine with their friends. So they've basically stuck Peppa Pig in front of their kids for hours and hours on end. Now, if that same thing is happening in China, we know what the adults do here. It's an iPad. They put it on an iPad. Now, I'm imagining now that once you're banning Peppa Pig, the, the iPad sales in China have to plunge, and the iPad generation of kids growing up are going to change. So I think Peppa Pig ban is a short on Apple. I don't know. I, I think that's a stretch. For me, I can't see... I mean, I, I get the logic, but there are so many other things that people watch on, on iPads. I mean, I, have you never heard of the Octonauts, man? Or, is that Octonauts or Octocats? Or, I don't know. What Maybe they, they'll I mean, ban them something. too. I mean, they sound really <laughs> subversive. Well, no, no, they are. I mean, but they are openly subversive. I mean, these guys, <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't mess around. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, a group of people looking to change the world. I, I'm not sure how big they are in China. But um, you know, it's bizarre, actually, because, say, without any – you and I, without getting our heads together, uh, my, my, uh, my short is uh, also animal-related. Um, and I, I, am, I am short uh, terrible Chinese zoos. So, we, so it's China, China as well. We're staying in China. We're staying with animals. <laughs> now, a few years ago, there was a fantastic story in the um, in the media about uh, uh, Henan Zoo, and they had an exhibit which was an African lion, and there were pictures of this thing all over the newspapers. And what the Chinese uh, zoo owners had done was taken a Tibetan mastiff and shaved its hair in all the places where a lion would have short hair and left it with its mane. Um, and passed it off as a lion, which uh, which is fantastic to watch. When you look at it, when you look at the pictures of this thing, it looks nothing like a lion. But fortunate for them, they were they were looking um, to to put up an exhibit for people who'd never seen a lion before. So it worked really, really well. That was almost five years ago. Um, this week, amazingly, I saw I found a story. It, it's a few months old, um, 
But there is another zoo in uh, in Guangxi, in Yulin, which had been set up uh, as a new uh, place for people to go and watch, uh, go and look at exotic animals. And one of the main attractions were penguins. Now, you have to go on the site on the on the internet and find this. If you if you Google, uh, the, there's a BBC news story about it. Pop up penguins shock China Zoo visitors. And uh, I first heard someone talking about this, and they said that the, the exhibit was actually inflatable penguins. And I couldn't really get my head around it, but I thought, you know what? If you put them far enough away, penguins don't really move. You know, maybe you could get away with it. You have to see the picture to understand that these these inflatable penguins are about five feet tall. Uh, some of them are bright pink, um, and, and they're all kind of laying around in a in a, in a pit. Uh, one of them's tied to a mast. One of the other uh, exhibits is a tortoise uh, in a box with a lot of money sprinkled on top of it. It's it's absolutely amazing. I, there's no. Uh, I, I looked through all the potential exhibits to see if they had any Shih Tzus, but uh, there didn't seem to be any um, any dog exhibits. But uh, yes, I am short appalling Chinese zoos. Um, Which but looking is James obviously not animal looking, cruelty if they're inflatable. <laughs> James and I are looking at the picture now. James is killing himself a lot. It's <laughs> That's hilarious. Amazing. I mean, I'm sure the first person who went up to the thing said, excuse me, are those, they're real, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're definitely real. They're definitely real. So do, I urge you to look at the, uh, I urge you to look up the story, um, uh, pop-up penguins shock China Zoo visitors to get the full impact of this one. But that is my short for the week. All right. Now, enough of this frivolity, enough of bacon and pepper pigs and inflatable penguins let's get into the meat of this uh this week's adventure finance that's you my friend um there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm, I'm dying to talk to you about uh and the first place to start is is going to have to be the dollar of course i mean it's something that you have spoken and written about a lot um you've had very very strong views on this that were very very right for a long time they've been wrong for a long time um and i know you were on the verge of maybe throwing the towel in but uh, you know i get the sense that's changed so i really want to get an update from you where you see the dollar currently and what you're, what you're thinking is around it. Yeah, actually, to tell you the truth, Grant, I, I closed out my dollar longs um, towards the end of last year. Um, I'd been very right for a very long time, I mean, years and years and years. Yeah. Um, and then it started pulling back and I thought, okay, I don't really understand this any longer. But in the back of my mind was, you know, I wanted to say I wanted to be short the dollar. And I could think of a number of reasons why I want to be short the dollar over a longer period of time. But there's this state of affairs out there, which is the Eurodollar offshore funding markets, which you've talked about with many people on this podcast yep. in the past. And that whole issue of the trillions of dollars, I think it's about $15 trillion right now, that is owed by foreigners in dollars is a big problem. Particularly when you start adding things like trade tariffs in and repatriation of capital under the new tax laws that, um, that uh, the Trump administration brought about. Because what that does is sucks dollars out of the global system. You know, trade tariffs, if there's less dollars being used, there's less dollars around, and there's less dollars, therefore, available to pay the debt. And suddenly we saw the LIBOR spread taking off versus the um, OIS spreads. And that's a complicated way of saying funding markets abroad were getting a little bit difficult in dollars. And that spread had widened out to levels not seen since the financial crisis, probably the second widest levels ever. And that made me pay attention. And I realized that it was actually a three-month leading indicator on the dollar. Because obviously, once your dollar funding comes off, you're then scrambling to redo the funding. And so what that means is, suddenly, as you scramble to redo the funding, it pushes the interest rates up again further. But it also means that you have to either start closing out some of your dollar shorts or buying back dollars 
uh, in various ways. So I've been looking at that, looking at that that kind of powder keg of stuff that's been hanging out there, thinking, okay, maybe this is going to turn around the dollar. And if it does, it's probably going to happen sharply. The missing part of the jigsaw puzzle was the positioning. We've now seen the largest ever short positioning pretty much in the history of the dollar. So when you've got everybody on one side of the fence with a bunch of people who desperately need dollars, interest rates rising on those guys who've borrowed those dollars abroad, and a whole tax regime that's shifting dollars back into the United States, you've got yourself an issue. And the issue, and, and the dollar took off in the last few days. Um, and I think the chances are that we could have a really kind of hair-on-fire dollar rally that lasts for a while. Now, does the dollar go back to the highs and above the highs? I don't really know. That's not my call. My call is the rate of change of the dollar over the next, let's say, three months could be somewhat terrifying. Now, as you know, I think the dollar is the key to almost everything, and that could upset some of the other big trades out there. If I look at the markets, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I've scanned through market positioning and seen the extremes that I see today. We've got the biggest ever uh, dollar short position. We've got the biggest ever uh, position in the history of the commodity markets in a long oil position. We have the uh, close to the biggest ever speculative long in the uh, price of copper. We've got the biggest ever short position um, in bonds, and that's across the curve, five-year and 10-year and euro-dollar futures. And these are, by a massive factor, the largest ever positions. We've got such an extremity of positions. And then when we look at the equity market, basically what you can extrapolate out of the equity market is the biggest long position or risk-taking position in all of history. So all of those things combined with the dollar rallying make me extremely nervous. Then on top of that, uh, you, you sadly couldn't make the, round ta- the Global Macro Investor Roundtable this year. But there's a couple of guys who will remain nameless from a, um, a large investment bank. And they were from the commodity business. And you and I have talked a lot, Grant, about volatility and how people were selling volatility in equities. And Mike Green and Chris Cole and a lot of people were talking about that. What I didn't realize is this is everywhere. So that the same players who were selling volatility in the equity market have a record short volatility position in the oil market, the corn market, the wheat market, the bond market, and the currency markets. I mean, of course they do, right? It, it, it hadn't occurred to me, but if you sit back and think about it, why wouldn't they be doing that, right? That's right. And so what you've got, you've got this, I think is a really dangerous situation that's brewing here that people aren't quite understanding the risks. Now, we know in, in a bull market, a lot of risks get swept, swept aside and things work out fine. And that may well happen. But if you look at the structure of the equity market now, and it's 200-day moving average, you look at the chart of Google and how it's resting on its 200-day moving average, how if you take the um, logarithmic chart from inception of Google, this is basically one trend line, and it's testing that trend line. You've got all of these things that are close to bringing about volatility. If the price of oil starts either rising or falling sharply. Now, the Iran situation, I think, is probably somewhat of a red herring for the oil price. So some people think the oil price got some big upside. I think if the dollar rallies, the oil price has a tremendous issue on the downside to deal with. And that then exposes all these short vol players. The currency market, if it continues to move like this, it'll probably pause soon. 
before it goes again. If it goes again, it goes again sharply. There's a ton of people with some really, really big positions, short volatility in, in that market too. And the same with the copper market and the same across the bond market. You know, heaven forbid if bonds, bond yields don't rise as much as the entire market's expecting because there's going to be a bloodbath and particularly when the market is short volatility. So I'm getting super interested here, right here, right now to see how this plays out. Well, okay, so let's dig into some of that. I mean, let's, first of all, the dollar, because this is, uh, I think you're right, I think it's the key to just about everything. Um, and opinion is so widely split, which I guess is a sign of the times we live in, but uh, people are either super bullish or super bearish, and you know, you watch the, the, the taunting on Twitter, it all gets a little bit old. But um, let, let me play devil's advocate, because uh, you know, I, I, I think over time the dollar goes lower. The presentation I gave a couple of months ago, Said that I, you know, I do expect a face ripping rally in the in the dollar, but I think it'll get squashed because I think it has to be. You know, and everything you're telling me here just reinforces my belief that they that they just can't let the dollar get out of hand. Let's let's suppose it does start to move higher, uh, and I think you're right. That rate of change is is crucial. If it if it grinds higher, um, people have more time to get out of the way. If it just starts um, jumping, then it creates a real problem. What would the steps be taken to try and mitigate that? Would there be massive swap lines open? Because obviously there are things that the central bank in the US can do to supply dollars to the market. How would they have to go about doing that, do you think, if we got the situation you think might play out? I mean, I think you're dead right, Grant. And this is why I'm not sure whether the dollar would go to new highs because the dollar is an issue for the world. Yeah. Now, you know, it's so nuanced. It's really difficult to figure this out because don't forget if the US ends up pissing off China so much, well, there's stuff China can do with the currency too. So we don't really know uh, what the Federal Reserve will do either in this situation. I mean, swap lines may be part of the equation. It helped in the past, but I've heard other people say that swap lines don't apply in the needs of the market currently. I don't really know. Um, I don't really know how this plays out. But I know that, and I've always said that the end of this dollar bull market would more likely to be you know, some sort of plaza accord where something is forced, some change is forced upon the markets, where the market has to become less reliant on dollar funding. But somehow to get to that situation, you need to get rid of this dollar funding. That's what I don't understand how to get to. It's the conundrum of this. I'm, I completely agree with your argument. I think part of the problem of the discussion on Twitter is the fact there's different time horizons. You know, if you're talking about the next yeah. 10 years, five years, is the dollar going lower or higher? Almost certainly going lower. But over the next year, you know, it's a tough call right here. Now, this could fizzle out. And normally, if economic growth stays reasonably stable, the dollar tends to not do well. But in a, in a point of high economic growth or weak economic growth, it's called the dollar smile. The dollar tends to do extremely well indeed. And we're seeing growth slow down. So, you know, I can't really answer your question, Grant. I do see those risks. We don't really even understand anymore how central banks can manipulate markets because there's so many ways in which they can do it. They will certainly try. What do the other central banks do if global growth is slowing? They're really not going to want um, to have stronger currencies themselves. So I think they'd be happy for a weaker dollar. So it's a really complex situation that involves geopolitics, kind of deep plumbing, plus kind of strategic level stuff. So it's not yeah. clear. Well, let's, well let, let, let's let's continue. And you, you brought the central banks there, so let, let's talk about them for a little bit. Because what's been interesting to me, the Fed have been 
um, very resolute in their statements about hiking. You know, Jay Powell seems to be very different. We spoke about this with Julian last week a little bit. Um, yeah, but the, the dollar hasn't reacted so far. The euro has been incredibly strong. But this this narrative of synchronized global growth seems to be weakening a little bit around the edges. Um, the central banks, I, I mean, I was going to ask you, are they still in play here? I mean, they're always going to be in play. I, I don't I don't see how they they can step back at this point. But the Fed particularly, what do you think it takes for them to to to, to step back and reverse their course again? What would we need to happen? Because they seem pretty set in stone for, for me right now, and that and that could be real problems for the markets if if we do get some some natural structural weakness occur. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, we don't really yet understand the Powell regime, but it seems that he's more resolute. So that means that the yield curve probably continues to flatten somewhat, even though it's almost at zero. And if you adjust it for the low level of rates anyway, it's probably negative currently. Um, yes, I mean. I think the Fed is going to continue, but we're now trying to price where the Fed put is. Is there a Fed put? What does it mean? How much lower is it? And the equity markets look like they want to test that. Now, in the end, as you know, I think everything comes down to the business cycle. If the business cycle starts to weaken, then the Fed back off. And we saw this, it, it feels to me so much like a rerun of 99-2000. And this, we're pretty much in the 2000 era right now, where the Fed are raising rates, and global growth suddenly doesn't look as good as it could do. And I remember it was in, I think it was December the 26th or 27th, uh, back in uh, 2000, that the Fed suddenly shocked the market by cutting rates. Now, to be fair, the curve is not pricing any of that yet. Usually, two-year bond yields will start to expect some change from the Fed. They've not done that yet. They're still edging higher in yield every single day, just grinding, grinding, grinding. But at some point, you'll see that shift. And that shift usually occurs at the same time the yield curve starts steepening. The yield curve, it's a bit misunderstood by people because people talk about the yield curve, the negative yield curve being the key signal to recession. It's actually the steepening that happens after that that um, big sell-off in the yield curve. That's when it's about to signal the recession. It always happens the same way, is that two-year notes stop rising in yield and start falling. And then suddenly they start falling faster than 10-year yields and the, the yield curve starts steepening. We're, we're looking for those kind of signals to understand when the Federal Reserve will stop doing what it's doing. But in the interim, I think they continue, as you say. But without getting too existential about the whole thing, um, you know, can, can we use metrics like that? Because what, what we're doing, and we're kind of forced to all of us who are trying to figure this puzzle out, we're relying on metrics that we've used for decades, if not centuries to, to indicate certain um, dynamics and certain shifts in trend in these markets. But, you know, I, I don't know that they work anymore. I mean, you've spoken uh, about this in the past, about how that whole yield curve going negative, that was never uh, considered in an era of essentially zero negative rates. Does that change that dynamic? I mean, you know, how do you go about when – you, when you're looking at the business cycle and you are a, a, an incredible student of the business cycle – how have you had to adjust the way you look at it to factor in the fact that the entire environment has has changed in ways that, that really must affect the underlying inputs? Well, interesting enough, I use a lot of year-on-year -year rates of change of things versus the ISM, which is my guide to the business cycle. 
So it's the year-on-year rate of change of equities or of copper, of oil, of bond yields, all of this stuff. And I don't see any change in their relationship to the business cycle whatsoever. So I don't actually believe that the Federal Reserve has had an effect on, on the relationship of asset prices to the business cycle. So what have they had an effect on? Well, clearly, we've now gone into the second longest business cycle in history. The previous one was also a highly manipulated cycle was the Greenspan years of the 90s. So I do think the Fed have extended the business cycle, um, and that has led to the elevation of asset prices and areas where we don't understand anymore when things start getting to all-time record valuations. So I think it's complicated in that, but I'm not really sure that it's changed the structure of how people necessarily um, invest uh, with regards to the business cycle. So I don't really see it. I don't see any particular shift. Now, going to the yield curve, I do imagine that it's unlikely to go negative because of the um, the fact that rates are so low, it makes it virtually impossible to do because 10 years would have to be so low in yield or two years have to be so high and 10 years would you know, offset that dramatically. It, I, I think it's unlikely. And if I looked at Japan, Japan's yield curve didn't go negative and has not been negative since 1990. So basically, it adjusted for lower rates, and it would get down to about 50 basis points, 25 basis points, and that would signal the low in the yield curve. You know, we can use a bit of Japan as a guideline. Japan's been the best guideline for all of this, but everyone seems to forget it and ignore it, but Japan's been great. So, so all right, let, let's change the subject a little bit and, and talk about volatility. You mentioned it um, a little while ago. This we had the scare earlier in the year. We had um, you know the return of volatility, which caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, the doomsayers were saying, "Well, this is it. You know, now we're, we're back to incredibly volatile markets." Um, it it kind of died down, but it hasn't gone away. We still get these. You know, we're getting four hundred point moves now, which we haven't had for a couple of years. And, and we had a cluster of them. We had you know two thousand point moves in a week. Um, but we are back to getting the occasional bolt out of the blue where the market, for, for no apparent reason, falls a couple of percent. Um, now, to, to you, is that a return to, to more normally functioning markets or is that a sign that um, th- this is distribution and we, are, we really are at a top in these markets? Okay, there's two things. One is a, I had a conversation with Mike Green, um, who, as you know, is one of the smartest people we all know. Sickeningly so. Thanks, yeah, frankly. and... Mike said, by the way, did you know that they changed the rules on, uh, I think it's called CCAR, which is how banks use um, um, risk capital. And what they changed was the ruling of the risk capital of volatility. So as part of the bank um, stress tests, they assign a certain kind of disaster scenario, middle scenario, an okay scenario for stress testing. Now, what they hadn't done, they'd adjusted like equity markets, and they keep adjusting them. They're, they're doing it on a dynamic basis, which is relatively sensible. What they did was ratchet up um, the amount of risk you need for taking volatility bets. So I hadn't realized that because they kind of miscalculated or, or calculated too low the risk in, in um, volatility bets, or the VIX, let's call it, what they'd allowed the banks to do was basically take more risk by shorting volatility and using that as an instrument to trade direction and other risk buckets. So the banks had been also sellers of volatility. 
So you've got the, the, you know, the asset management firm selling volatility and the banks too. That changed in February. February the 1st, they changed the rulings. So suddenly, banks had too much risk capital in volatility and had to close out the bets. So suddenly, you saw volatility creeping into the market and it kind of spread quickly across the equity market. And, you know, these volatility ETF, inverse volatility ETFs blew up. But what that meant, if you look at the VIX now, it's basically shifted the range of the VIX because you've taken one of the largest volatility sellers out of the market, or at least they don't become the marginal player any longer. So that has shifted the volatility regime. And another way to answer the question is what you alluded to is, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at the relationship of volatility and markets, particularly at turning points. And generally, markets get more volatile at turning points anyway. And in 2099, volatility rose and rose and rose as the market rose, which was an odd dynamic for many people. But the kind of speculative frenzy had caused huge amounts of option buying. And that was raising volatility in itself. And I think we're seeing a similar thing now where the market's getting more worried about things, more excited, overly excited about things. And you can see volatility in stocks like Tesla, which was a market darling, is now a much more complicated play for people as the story starts to develop. And that's across the board, Facebook, Google, a number of really big, widely held companies. And I think that's fascinating. I think it's also backed up by the fact of, again, going back to 99-2000, there was a huge divergence in what stocks were doing well and what weren't. Technology was doing supremely well, as it is today. And stuff like oil companies were doing terribly. Now, if I look at the price of ExxonMobil, it looks shockingly bad. And if it goes much lower, it's going to start breaking some huge head and shoulder top patterns and could go much, much lower. Now, this is one of the largest companies on earth, but it's not benefiting from what everybody else is benefiting from. And we can see the same in a whole number of big companies. People say, yeah, it could be because GE's run badly that it's not doing well, but really GE can do well, even if it's run badly, because its tentacles go everywhere. But all of these kind of stocks Ford is another one, are starting to do really badly. And that divergence is usually a sign of a market top too. So I look at the the price patterns. We look at all the structure of markets with the volatility bets and the issues with um, market positioning. And we look at how volatility is raised. And I think all of that is starting to add to the thing that you and I presented on Real Vision a while ago, which is we're teetering towards the edge of the cliff. All right, well, look, I, I'm not going to let you go without getting more of you on Tesla because I'm fascinated by it. But let's let's save that because once you go down that rabbit hole, sometimes there's no going back. <laughs> um, you you are a, a fantastic chartist. You you I, I know you've said to me many times, and, and it, it's always resonated with me that you you start with a chart with every idea you have. It always starts with a chart. So let's talk about some of the charts now that you're really focused on. You, you've spoken about Google. Uh, it'd be good to get a, a little bit more about why you think that's so important. But give us sort of you know three or four of the charts that, that are the, the charts that you're starting with right now. So I think Google is the most important chart in the world right now, full stop. Why? It's because it encapsulates everything about the current age of where we are in markets. Google is a company that has used you know, something that, that that will appeal to your mindset is has used kind of excess free capital to create an enormous business. And that is the, you know, the result of the central banking. So Google's part of that. Google's part of the massive move to technology and and software and 
big data. You know, these are some of the biggest trends that we've seen of our lifetimes, and Google is the poster child for all of that. It's also the poster child for ETFs. It's the poster child for the concentration of risk. It's basically the poster child for every single feature of the market we've been living in since 2009, and arguably since 2000 or before that, when technology became the big part of the economy and the financial economy started shrinking. So Google is everything and everywhere. So why is it breaking down? Well, what worries me about Google is the story about Facebook. It's the story that I've been writing about for a long time and have talked about extensively is the misuse of data is enormously troublesome. And it's something that was going to become very clear. And again, this is not the politics of the election, but to have Facebook's platform being allowed for people to try and influence other people's behavior in a way that's not just about shopping. Shopping, that's bad in itself. And there's a number of companies that use that, but behavioral psychology has been used in advertising in all of time. But what Facebook did, they stumbled across something incredibly clever, and it was actually with behavioral uh, economists where they came across this. Um, And that is the like button. The like button, so innocuous, such something that we're all, we all love and use. The like button is basically a dopamine uh, receptor device for the brain. So every time we get a like, we get a dopamine hit. So it becomes an entire behavioral economics platform. And then you can also access the same dopamine receptors by affecting people's other emotions, whether it's hatred whether it's laughter, whether it's, you know, all of those kind of things. So Facebook basically became a way of affecting human behavior. Now, the idea was advertisers could access that and you could you could create some sort of behavioral shift, as all advertising always does, towards buying a product. But what people realize is you can use it for other means. And if you remember back to The World on the Brink, the documentary we did on Real Vision, that was essentially how social media is using this kind of structure to, without knowing, become the platform for a tribal existence that's not based around state lines, where you can you can just be a Chihuahua fancier and only speak to other Chihuahua fanciers, um, and you see nothing about people who own Rottweilers because you don't like Rottweilers. That's the world we live in. So we don't have a harmonious society where we all have to understand each other's points of view to live together because we can live together online separately and only be around the people we want to be around. So that creates a very different world that's almost ungovernable. And when that is used to also influence massive groups of people into schools of thought, it becomes propaganda. Um, And a number of different people have used it in a number of different ways. And the Cambridge Analytica example was quite severe because, I mean, I've actually met with Cambridge Analytica and they had up to 5,000 pieces of information on 220 million voting Americans, including credit cards, mobile phone bills, um, how you voted, what you've done, every single footprint online, they've got it all. So that's the Facebook story that started to come out. People are like, really, should we be on Facebook? And, you know, and again, people always never look at the knock-on effect because they don't realize that Instagram is Facebook. WhatsApp is Facebook. I mean, the amount of information Facebook had is enormous and it's troubling, but people are slowly waking up. But they haven't figured out that Google's much worse. Google has more information 
on more people than any other firm, government, organisation in all of history. They know every single element about what you do online and they track it and they capture that data and they can use that data. Now, it's so extensive that I bought a new house a couple of years ago and there was those Google Nest devices to regulate my temperature and air conditioning stuff in the house. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I like those. Until I realized what they were. When I come into the house, first thing I did is put my phone down. I've been walking around with it the rest of the day. It knows where I am. Google knows exactly where I am at any one point in time. It also has, if I use the Google Calendar, it has access to my diary. It can tell, did I make the meeting or not make the meeting? All of this is recordable and downloadable from Google. All of the information about you, of which it is shocking. When I get into my house, Google doesn't know much more. It knows I'm in my house. But now with the Nest devices dotted around the house, it knows when I'm in what room, what time I wake up, when I come home from work, what time I leave from work. It knows all of my preferences in my house too. This is shocking. And the, I mean, I I wrote a long article about this. There's kind of 50 elements of your life that Google know everything about more than anybody else. Now, for Facebook to be under pressure for this, Google, Google can only be worse. The EU have just started implementing GDPR, which is a right to your own data in Europe. And there's some big sweeping changes that dramatically affect these companies. But I think this is just the start. This kind of regulation of the you know, libertarian dream of the internet is going to be pervasive and it has to happen in some way, shape or form because it can be used by bad actors in certain ways. Now, it's difficult to argue to what's the morality and what the platform rights are, what should they be doing about it. I don't know the answer to those. These are complicated structural issues within society and within how we structure modern communication. But what I do know is governments will not step aside and allow this to happen. Now, interestingly enough, you know, Russia's been accused of a lot in this whole equation. But Russia bans its own versions of apps. China doesn't allow full usage. Many countries don't allow full usage of applications because it can create social strife. And to some extent, that's right. It doesn't make it right banning things, but there's a complication here, and I think the regulation is going to come. So the regulation comes to Google, or there's more pressure on Google, and it has a twofold effect. One, it makes it more difficult to collect and capitalize on that data, and therefore the value of its data decreases. And that's important because that's the embedded value of Google. The other thing is Google is basically currently, in its current guise, just an advertising platform. So it basically, with Facebook, owns 70% of the online advertising market. So if you start scaring the advertisers, they will go elsewhere. If people use Google less because they're next to, on YouTube, some racial hate speech video, of which, you know, Google's not been able to stamp any of this out, then you've got a real problem because advertisers will walk away. And we've seen Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and a whole bunch of other companies saying they really want to move away from these platforms. They're too dominant and it's open for abuse. We've seen the false click stories. There's a whole number of issues there. So I think, you know, Google is one of the greatest companies of the last 30, 40, 50 years. But could it be worth 60, 70% less? Yeah, it could be. And that's what worries me. All right. Well, it's, I mean, it, it is, it is a, it's a fascinating chart. And obviously, if, if Google goes, 
then the market almost has to go right along with it. It's in it's in it's in so many other places. Google stock. It's in just about every every ETF I can think of has found a way to cram Google into it, no matter what the uh, the tone of the ETF is. Well, I mean, we're running out of time. But I, I want to get a couple more um, charts from you, just quickly. Uh, other things that you're looking at that people might want to put on their watch list. So give me a couple of other charts that you that you, you you're paying particular attention to. Yeah, one that most people won't look at. Well, they'll look at oil, and I, I'm really freaking out about the risk in the oil markets and how the world is assuming that the oil price won't fall. And there's a whole number of issues within that. And there's not enough time to talk about oil here in depth. But there's something that interests me is really the chart of the big oil companies, particularly in Europe, the the SXEP, the European um, energy sector. If you look at the monthly chart of that, it's probably the biggest sectoral head and shoulders top pattern I've ever seen. Yeah, I've looked at this chart. It's a doozy. Now, in that, in something like that, there's a lot of information. That information is the move away from oil and move towards um, renewable energy. It's the story of potential fines for, you know, there's a court case that people haven't been talking about, how ExxonMobil has been dragged by the courts, the New York Department of Justice, for knowing about climate change but purposely um, hiding from it. Now, if I were a government, I'd be rubbing my hands with glee. Oil companies have a ton of money and we can find the shit out of them. And I think we saw that with the tobacco industry, the asbestos industry, and we've seen it with the banking industry. And I think the oil industry is going to be the next great enemy for people to be able to tax. Particularly if governments change to be more left-leaning, I think you'll find huge amounts of taxes on these things. And I think there'll be a backlash versus the current administration's policies. Um, and what we'll see is a concentration back on um, on kind of climate change issues. Now, that's just bad for the oil companies, simply put. I don't care about your politics and what people think about it. The point being is I think there's a structural shift in these oil companies and that that is something that really interests me. So that's a chart I'm looking at very closely. Okay, well, you know, I've just remembered, I, I do want to get your views on Tesla because I'm, I'm just fascinated by it. And, and um, by the time this airs, we're recording this the day before it airs, um, and today is Tesla Day. The Q1 numbers will be announced today. Um, and, you know, I, I, look, I'm... I'm I'm an open bear on the company. Uh, you know, I, I, I find the whole thing just intensely fascinating. And I'm just, I, I just revel in the, in the bull bear back and forth on Twitter because it's just hilarious to me just how strongly people hold their, their views and how, and how uh, up in each other's faces they get. So, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm dying to hear your thoughts on Tesla. What, what do you think of it? I don't see a cohesive bullish argument by anybody apart from they love Elon, Elon Musk and, right. and okay. what he stands for in the modern age. Well, from a broad perspective, yes, stands for a load of good things. What he also stands for is some terrible corporate governance. Um, and so I don't get the bullish argument. I think, you know, and I think the bears have really won out. Even Bloomberg published an entire article about why Tesla is about to run out of cash. And, you know, it's a story of overreach. It's a story of hubris. I mean, it's a it's going to be a great documentary. Somebody's going to make that documentary right. and it's going to be, it's, it's just a fabulous story. And in the end, you know, what he's doing with rockets is actually a much better business than what he's doing with cars. What he did do with cars was fantastic. He created the change dynamic that is allowing everybody to move into this sector. And I think that's a good thing. Will he survive? Probably almost certainly not. Will he end up still being one of the richest people in the world from his rockets? Probably um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely story. There's so much to this. 
Um, and that's why, obviously, you're fascinated by it too. It's a story of a human struggle. It's the story of a guy trying to ha- hold his head above water. It is a story of the hubris, and it's the story of the modern age, and I and it's a story of the shifting world that we live in. I, you know, I love it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 taking on the the sort of the tenor of a religious parable to me at the moment. I mean, it's it's you, you you've got you've got this sort of messiah like figure who has his believers that follow him all around the world, and you've got people throwing rocks at him who just who are unbelievable. I mean, I just find the whole thing fascinating. I can't, I can't wait to listen to this conference call later on. Anyway, look, mate, we've we've run out of time. We've got to try and keep this thing out. You and I could do it, and I dare say when I'm back in Cambridge later in the week, we will do, talk about this a lot more. That was a very um, quick hour. Like, yeah, it doesn't, it just flies by. It wow. just flies by. But, uh, but we have run out of time. Um, before we go... Uh, you would all join in with the course. In fact, Ralph, why don't you read the disclaimer? Why don't you read the disclaimer? This will be a nice change for people. Well, before I go in the disclaimer, I just want to urge everybody again, please go and look at the free trial of Real Vision. You know, the, the podcast is changing, but it's all there. All of this great information grants incredible interviews. If you haven't seen Grant Williams's interviews, Grant never bigs himself up, so I'll do it. If you haven't seen In Conversation with Grant Williams, it is not only the best series in all of finance, but it's one of the best interview series, full stop. He does an extraordinary job. And if you like Grant interviewing on the podcast, you ain't seen nothing yet. So realvision.com forward slash adventures in finance, um, or just Google it, find it, sign up for the free trial and just binge watch this incredible content. And in the end, it's going to cost you $15 a month. It's nothing. Right. Legal disclaimer. I've never done this before, but here we go. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. Do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Beautifully done. I, I'm, I'm impressed. I am impressed. All right, well, look, um, we will be back next week with our final Adventures in Finance, uh, and we've got a few surprises up our sleeve for you then. But in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question for us about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we would love to hear from you. Uh, so send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe on iTunes. And leave some reviews. We like hearing those reviews. And he's back and he's as sharp as ever. Oh, you know. Keep up to date with the latest interviews, research, publications, and of course, podcast episodes. Then follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. That's all you've got to do. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Me at Raul GMI. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's it from us for another week. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.